Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 86 of the Simple Life Podcast. It is a very special one uh, here today. Uh, today's guest is someone I've been trying to get on for, for quite a while, and luckily, fortunately, for you fine folk, we've been able to pull this one together. Um, as you may well be enjoying now, we're about, yeah, about a week into summer. Uh, it's not so bad up in the north, but I have been flying around the, this country of ours, and as I did warn you last week, folks, if you are still growing in HPS, in unsecured rooms, do check out what you're doing. Check out some LEDs. Look at fire safe equipment. I've heard too many horror stories recently of growers going up in this country. So if you are a clandestine grower, I know you're not supposed to. None of us are, but keep safe, folks. So today's guest, without further ado, uh, this bio is literally a page, folks. You know me. Normally it's a, it's a little uh, sub note, but I could not believe i mean i knew quite a lot about today's guest uh, but i couldn't believe the the extent to which um he has been prevalent within the industry for so long so please do prepare for this one um he is a man of many firsts he has co-founded several influential and iconic u.s cannabis industry businesses including harborside inc one of the first six dispensaries uh provided with a license in the U.S., Step Hill Labs, which was the first uh, commercial cannabis testing facility, Arcview Group, which is the U.S.'s first cannabis investment firm, as well as the National Cannabis Industry Association, the first uh, body trade association for the cannabis industry. He also co-founded the Last Prisoner Project, a nonprofit dedicated to cannabis criminal justice reform. He, co uh, sorry, he hosts the radio uh, Radio Free Cannabis podcast. He is a lifelong activist, author, public speaker, whose tireless work has earned him the distinct designation, the father of the legal cannabis industry. Without further ado, the legend, Mr. Steve D'Angelo. Simpa, how wonderful to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, like I said, for, for, for making this time. I'm so appreciative. And uh, thank you for you know, letting me get through that introduction there. Um, wow, man. You've done a hell of a lot. You have you have done a lot. Um, you've been active at this for such a long time. I remember the first time I read your book, The Cannabis Manifesto, sort of getting an overview of um, your youth activities, sort of when you were engaging in politics and the yippies. And it wasn't until I went back and revisited this recently that I kind of realized the what some people would consider, I suppose, the juxtaposition between your youth and your rebellion and all this anarchy, and then being the, the father of this, this modern movement um, within cannabis reform. Well, it's, it's a, a very interesting question. Um, I've always considered myself a revolutionary more than a business person. Uh, but I found a niche in my activist work uh, to create socially conscious businesses that allow me to take care of myself and my family, sometimes a lot of other people, and also move causes forward. So I've done that repeatedly in the, in the course of my career, but I've never really thought of myself as a, as a business person. The businesses that I start always have mission plans. They don't always have exit plans. I like it. I like it. I think that is, uh, yeah, one thing that people that maybe have not aware of your work, and if you aren't, folks, do go learn some of your history, please. Um, <laughs> I don't say that derogatorily. Obviously, you don't know what you don't know and, until you don't know it, frankly. Um, but it is interesting. You, you can plot 
this evolution. So you kind of noticed this necessity with the change of the law in California uh, for, for access um, for medicinal cannabis products. And then as that business harborside sort of comes together, you then notice the need for there to be testing of these products, for there to be ubiquity and standardization and for people to understand more about what it is in cannabis that helps them in their particular condition, ailment, you know, spot in life. Yeah, exactly. Um, each one of the cannabis businesses and associations that I've started grew out of some type of organic need that I saw. So we started with Harborside, which was uh, intended to be the gold standard retail to prove to the world that cannabis could be retailed and bring benefits to communities instead of harms. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> we did that very well. And the the success of, of that um, uh, enterprise allowed me to move on to creating Steep Hill Laboratory, excuse me, <clears throat> which was the first cannabis analytics laboratory. And that happened just because I, I, I knew uh, before we opened the doors of Harborside that it was possible that cannabis could be contaminated with dangerous substances, with pesticides, with funguses. We weren't even thinking about fentanyl back in those days, mm-hmm. but, um, but today it's a concern. And so as, as I am dispensing cannabis to hundreds of thousands of immunocompromised people, it's, it's incumbent upon me to make sure that it's tested and that it's safe. And then as we started getting recognition for, uh, for those works, uh, having TV shows made about us and news cameras coming into Harborside, I started uh, having more and more people who were in the cannabis industry uh, who wanted to grow their businesses coming to me thinking that I had tons of money and asking me to invest. And well, I didn't because Harborside was a nonprofit, you know, always was under my leadership. Um, but at the same time, a friend of mine, Troy Dayton, had um, uh, donors, high net worth donors, people who had been contributing to organizations like the Marijuana Policy Project, were asking him where they could find cannabis companies to invest in. So Troy and I put two and two together and created the Artview Group, knowing that if the legal industry was going to grow, we had to welcome investors into into that dynamic. Now, after I'm done answering this question, you asked me uh, what I think about all of those investors coming into the industry, and, and then we have another conversation. But um, but that that was the theory behind all of these businesses, and then. The association, National Cannabis Industries Association, is just if you have an industry that's being attacked by the federal government, which we were at that time uh, when we started NCIA, we started it partly because the federal government was raiding cannabis businesses and we needed a voice in Washington to represent us. And and so all of these businesses grew out of some type of organic growth, some type of of immediate need. Yeah, definitely. I I would argue then, arc view in a, in a way for all yeah I'm, I'm gonna ask the obvious question i didn't realize i was wearing my anti-capitalist t-shirt uh, today um but yeah, i'm not necessarily not necessarily um anti-capitalist but yeah i mean i obviously see a certain projection um of a blueprint being followed in the uk that the us has set and obviously i, th- I feel that the interim work that yourself produced it being non-profit it being uh community focused it being about restorative justice um sorry about that my camera just decided to turn itself off oh i love this technology <laughs> Uh, I'll let that cool down. I'm still here. I'll keep talking. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry about this, Steve. Um, 
but yet the ARC group then, did you form this with the intention of kind of going, well, obviously people are going to make money. It's coming within this space. You said earlier about there always being a mission statement, but not necessarily an exit plan. Was the mission of this to kind of guide good people to good money to make, well, good decisions? So the, the mission of the ArcView group was twofold, right? One was to create a way for cannabis businesses to grow. Uh, at that time, you know, we, we, we had a lot of very, very young cannabis businesses, and the only way they were going to be able to grow and thrive is, is if they found investors. So it was, it was very simple uh, from that point of view. But the other idea was to make sure that as we grew the industry, we infused it with a sense of, of activism, with a sense of political responsibility uh, that had been a part of, of Troy's career and my career. So, you know, one of the things that we always talked about at the at the ArcView group was not just creating a new industry, but creating a new kind of industry that broke the standard corporate mold and 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 mm -hmm. and you know, brought a new example to the, to the fore. I get that. I, I get that. And I think, um, I'd like to think in some ways that it is, it is, it has done that. Um, obviously when you open a new door and there's people being queuing anyway, they're going to try and rush past you and, and get through it. Um, and I think we, we've kind of seen that with, with people with maybe not as, um, open and genuine intention, um, you know, maybe more sort of greedy and capital focused. Um, that uh, I, I think over time now they're losing that ground. I think there's a lot of people circling back to kind of the philosophies that yourself and others embodied during the first waves of this sort of new uh, legalization. Well, there's a very interesting conversation about scale going on now, and one of the big differences between what the ArcView Group has done. Uh, and continues to do, and and what many other investment vehicles do is the Arcview Group has always concentrated on startup companies, on early stage companies, and on private companies, and empowering small groups of individuals to make a big difference. What you've seen since 2018 uh, is very different with the opening of the Canadian public exchanges to cannabis investment. You saw um, huge uh, amounts of capital aggregated by people who didn't really know anything about cannabis, didn't really care anything about cannabis, but knew how to work the Canadian stock exchanges very, very well. And, and because there was a lot of pent-up investor demand for, for cannabis investments, and because it was very early and people were not very educated, they managed to raise billions and billions and billions of dollars. Unfortunately, for the most part, those public companies put the billions of dollars they raised into the hands of people who know nothing about cannabis, who are completely unprepared to handle that money. So, for example, in Canada, since 2018, the licensed producers, the licensed cultivators have only sold 20% of the cannabis that they've produced. 80%, that's eight zero percent of the cannabis that they've grown had to be destroyed or has been warehoused because it was of such low quality that nobody would buy it. So what has happened with that money has been a disaster. Yes, definitely. I mean, that highlights a certain problem that we're seeing in the European market 
uh, both on the uh, lawful and unlawful side, whether it be sort of through the legal industry. So we now have prescription models here in the UK that are importing cannabis products from Canada amongst other countries and then irradiating them as a procedure as part of the prescribing. They're then claiming that this is for, for health and safety of the end consumer. There is a, a persistent rumor and sort of conversations going on that a lot of that 80% of the product that's then shelved, it's because it obviously can't be sold under Canadian regulation, but there are other regions where the regulation is less laxed. And thus, if that product is infected with some mold or something like that, that the radiation is supposed to kill the spores and then theoretically in other markets make it a viable product. Yeah, I, I, I can't speak to whether or not the UK will be the unlucky recipient of some of that very, very bad Canadian cannabis. What I can tell you is that collectively, that decision cost investors, cannabis investors, $11 billion. That's how much money has been lost by Canadian cannabis investors in those licensed producers. Wow. So the same thing uh, to a lesser degree has happened in the United States since 2018, a flood of amateurs have invaded the industry. They pretty much don't know what they're doing. Many of them don't use cannabis, don't have very much respect for cannabis or cannabis culture, but they're very good at raising massive amounts of money. Well, what's happened is they've, they've now deployed that money to spectacular failure, spectacular failure. So in Canada now, all of the companies that went and erected these million square foot grow rooms are closing down their grow rooms and are starting to supply themselves from small growers who actually know what they're doing. And so this is what's going to happen in the industry one way or the other, because the plant herself is demanding it. The plant herself is speaking to us. We've tried large scale with cannabis. We've tried to put this plant in a million square foot grow room. And she says to us, no, it's not going to work. I'm not going to reach my full potential in a great big factory like this. There's going to be a range of, of other problems that you never anticipated that are going to come to bear. I did not come to you to help you build pyramids, to help you concentrate wealth. I came to you to help you flatten pyramids. I came to you to help you topple pyramids. I came to you to spread freedom and broaden opportunity. Uh, and I think that's what the plant is saying to us very, very clearly now. I agree. I agree. And I think there is, for all this is going to sound a bit odd to some of my, uh, my listeners, um, I do think there is a space for um, high-level venture capitalism within this and capital investment, but I don't think it's within consumable cannabis. I think it's within the commercial applications, you know, plastic alternatives, replacing petroleum, you know, looking at graphene research, uh, carbon sequestration technology, like they're looking at... Um, I can't remember the name of the company off the top of my head in, in South America and they're building this huge warehouse and growing these cultivars of low THC just through the vegetative period to sequester carbon, create biomass, burn it, and then pump the CO2 back into the system. And they've got so good with this system, that the, the, the models that they can then uh, burn and incinerate garbage. But then they've gone to another degree and now they're running dirt water, dirty water into a grey water and making it clean water through a hydroponic fed system. So th I think that there is real potential and scope for that kind of knowledge and capital and business-minded um, focus and intellect 
to be you know utilized but it's i don't think it's for the the majority of this transitory group of individuals from legacy that are now just trying to find legitimacy they they just want acceptance they want to show what they've learned over this 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 time you know so um i i i agree with you absolutely regarding large large industrial structures being far better suited to the hemp industry than they are to consumable cannabis. And, you know, when we look at consumable cannabis, it's, it's not like the hemp industry where we need to invent new models and new technologies, new infrastructures, right? We have something that's worked pretty well around the world for cannabis for a long time to the degree that it hasn't been subjected to law enforcement terrorism. There is a legacy, a system that works. And, and, you know, what I'm advocating now is a legal system that mirrors and welcomes the existing legacy system. So imagine this, Simpa. Imagine if every grow room was 5,000 square feet and no larger. Imagine if each one of those growers was empowered to create whatever they wanted out of their cannabis, hand rubbed hash, water hash, blunts, cigars, canagars, cookies, chocolates, whatever it is that pulls their string. Imagine if you could create a village of all of those producers so the consumers could walk from shop to shop to shop. The producers would maximize their margin because they'd be selling directly to the end consumers. The consumers would be getting the best value because they'd be buying directly from the producers. And what a lovely day it would be going from shop to shop to shop to shop sampling all of this exceptional artisan quality, low cost cannabis, right? Now imagine an online platform that allows you to do the same thing globally. Yeah. Now, why wouldn't we do it that way? Why wouldn't we allow our legacy producers to directly supply consumers? I agree, with it, but it's something we learned during uh, the lockdowns, especially over here. Some people got a bit eh, unscrupulous with their business practices. So because people couldn't see product before they were, they were buying it, people were buying things based more than ever on the speculation of, oh, this is fire, 11 out of 10, all of those cliched, quite youthful terms you hear. Because we've not, one of the consequences I see of the over commercialization of cannabis is its oversimplification marketing. Oh, sativa will do this to you. Indica will do this to you. And it's just, we've, we've missed a lot of this. So I think more and more people of kind of sores or people with experience and now understanding to respond to smells. So they're understanding terpene profiles. It's the synergy between the terpenes, cannabinoids, and other minor uh, compounds that are having these effects. And you and I consume the same cultivar and have two very different reactions because of our, endocannabinoid systems and other smaller um, sort of polythoral pathways within the body. There are a plethora of different reasons why we'll have these different experiences. But this online-only platform, I think, negates people's opportunity to have that, that physical reaction. There's sometimes if I go like a kid in a candy shop to like a club in, well, anywhere in the UK or in Spain, I always want to get the jar and because I'm responding not to the name, not to whatever percentage, to an instinct. And I think that is quintessential for me of the formation of our relationship to cannabis is that we should in some way always have this ability to to, to yeah, develop in a way that I can't tell you how to form your relationship with cannabis, nor should I be able to. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I look, I, I think that you that you always want to have that face to face experience with the plant to be able to smell it, to be able to look at it. That's why I think you, you, you have two things, right? You empower artists and producers to sell directly to consumers face to face. And then you give them an online platform so that they can reach all of the people that they, they don't have the ability to reach. And, uh, you know, uh, folks would come in from, from, from the countryside or from different towns and visit the, the village and get introduced to the brands that they like, and then be able to continue to, to patronize those shops uh, via an online, an online platform, right? So we start broadening the scale of the industry. And instead of having 10 companies that all get to build a million square foot grow rooms, we have thousands and thousands of small growers who get to spend, who build 5,000 square foot grow rooms, you know, and, and everybody wins. I mean, it, it, it makes me think in some way of, um, is it Ross Ulbrich, um, bless him, who really shouldn't be in prison, who founded Silk Road, the online sort of drugs trade platform. And yeah, it's very similar to that is they, they wanted to create a platform where the substance themselves bigged up the the producer of it obviously there was quite a bit of cannabis trade on there so i'm not going to muddy the waters too, too much but i mean in terms of conceptually the idea of it that the best vendors rose to the top because they had the best product the best service it wasn't about advertising or how much you paid on a google hit list or your search engine optimization, it was direct physical feedback from consumer and often then these uh, individuals of, well, I suppose, psychonauts or people that really understand the nuance of different sort of compounds and the effects to give this feedback to create guidance for novel new consumers entering the market. And for all, obviously, the FBI, CIA, you know, every international agency hated it. People take drugs that were going to take them anyway, but in this space, they could at least regulate themselves in a way that meant it was for the best of everybody. Yeah, there was money made. Yeah, there was obviously overdoses and whatever else as a consequence. That happens in life, unfortunately. But better education was provided by the marketplace itself. Whereas I feel the current cannabis legalization system, as I um, insinuated before, is oversimplistic. It's over standardized and it's broken down into going, oh, it's easy. It's this, this, and this. And it's like, she is not that simple as you state as a plant. It is the single most versatile, you know, the symbiotic species that we have evolved with on this planet. We are only just on page one, sentence one of an encyclopedia of knowledge that we need to relearn about this damn plant. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, the the potential is so vast. You know, you mentioned hemp a little bit before, and <clears throat> we can really uh, the the amazing thing. Uh, Mother Nature was just so amazingly kind and generous when she gifted this plant to us because at, at, in one moment it will wake up our minds and our hearts and our spirits, bring us closer to nature, understand the need to take real action now, and at the same time gives us the raw material that we need to build a new life-affirming economy. And, and for those of your listeners who, who are not hip to this, the basic bottom line is that anything that you make out of a tree or out of petroleum or out of cotton and a bunch of other extractive raw materials can instead be made out of hemp, which can be grown without chemical inputs, which can be grown with one third the amount of water that it takes to grow cotton, which can produce four times the amount of the fastest growing trees in terms of biomass per acre per year, uh, which sequesters, get this, 20 tons of atmospheric carbon for every hectare of hemp harvested. 
So theoretically, if we just start making more things out of hemp and we can grow enough hemp, we can stop global warming just with that transition to a better raw material. Yeah, entirely. I mean, to sort of quote one of your uh, your late colleagues, obviously Jack Herr, the future of um, the the future of mankind is hemp. Otherwise, there is no future. And I mean, I I'll in all honesty interject here and go. I kind of have an umbrance with the words hemp, and I'll sort of explain here in the it. We, there are several studies that have come from America uh, recently in a few areas where they're, they're trying to understand this difference of it's where the point of convergence is between what we would traditionally consider hemp of low THC variety, insert whatever uh, percentage your region is, uh, but it's obviously the accepted cultivars of this certain percentages typically. Um, and then when it crosses over into cannabis, and what the finding about the, the efficacy of the plant and its health in terms of how much more biomass it will produce, um, the extra cellulose within it, the extra other byproducts that can be created, it to me feels we need to reunify as it were hemp and cannabis so we get both from both crops. I visited farms in Colorado up in Mendocino and I spoke to, uh, I'm not going not gonna, to not gonna grass you up, brother, um, but I spoke to this guy on, on his dry deck and we were two floors up and I saw this mound across the way and I was like, what, what the hell is this? And he's like, that's a sticks and stems. And I went, have you ever heard of graphene? Have you ever heard of, and I just listed off these things to him and he just kind of went, I could watch him get redder and redder. And I was like, what's, what's, what's wrong? And he's like, I'm licensed for flour. That's an industrial byproduct. I'm not allowed to process that. And then it suddenly hit me this wave of how many millions of cannabis plants are grown in the US that then the air quotes, the hemp byproducts, as it were, the sticks, the stems, the physical biomass of it is then just wasted. It's a lost product. And then on the other side, we're then destroying all of these hot crops because the hemp fields are testing too high for THC, which we know the plant itself will actually stimulate and trigger THC production when it's stressed or even actually when she's happy. When it starts to acclimatize into an area, it will produce more THC to produce a healthier crop. So we're starting to again understand this nature of, or in my opinion, understand this this, this dualistic nature of cannabis, and now really bring it back together to cement together all of these parts, you know, rather than these fragmented uh, industries and uses. So it's a false construct. Um, <clears throat> the idea that there's two different types of cannabis, and you distinguished between them um, on the basis of how much THC they contain is is just is just a wrong way of thinking. They, you know, to my way of thinking, the right way of categorizing the different types of cannabis is that you have industrial cannabis, which you could call hemp, which is grown to make things out of. And you have consumable cannabis, which is grown to put inside the human body, whether it's for food and nutritional purposes, whether it's for quote unquote medical purposes, whether for spiritual purposes, uh, for wellness purposes, whatever the purpose is. And I think that that's really the, the best way to understand uh, the, the two different types of cannabis. The 0.3% or alternatively the 1% THC threshold for hemp is a new construct uh, that was just devised actually by some Canadian uh, uh, quote unquote scientists who, who made an absolutely arbitrary number uh, when they did that. Um, prior to the time of cannabis prohibition, nobody was measuring the amount of THC in hemp crops. Nobody really cared um, uh, unless they were trying to make hemp medicines in which they, they, type, they, they sought out high THC 
uh, cultivars. So it, the, the problem uh, comes in uh, that the cannabis plant is not really designed to grow without producing THC. And the cultivars that are 0.3, that, that typically point, produce 0.3% or less, really have to be tortured in order to do that. And they, are, they, they, are not, they cannot be grown in the optimal growing uh, system. And then there's a lot of other cultivars, which might be far more robust cultivars that just can't be used at all because they'll definitely be over 0.3%. So you're either torturing a cultivar to make it fit in that 0.3% box, or you're not using a cultivar, which could be a really great cultivar because it won't fit in that box no matter what you do. In either case, the technical efficiency of the hemp crop is being negatively impacted by that choice. And what I would say is this, in a world where a hemp economy is the key to saving the planet, Anybody and anything that gets in the way of maximizing the efficiency of a hemp crop, that's what a crime is. That's what a sin is. Don't talk to me about a 0.3% or a 1% threshold that we don't need anyhow that's going to reduce the environmental efficiency of this amazing plant. Why do we need this 0.3.1% thing anyhow? The only reason, even for prohibitionists, the only reason to have it is if you have an underground market that legal crops would be diverted to. So why don't we just legalize cannabis? Yeah. Because if there's not an illegal market to divert to, if all cannabis is legal, then this problem is solved and you don't have to worry about 0.38% or 1%. You just grow the most efficient hemp cultivar for the fiber or for the cellulose or for the seed or the oil or whatever it is that you happen to be growing that crop for to maximize our ability to save the planet. Yeah. And that's just on basically effectively diverting from polluting and destructive industries and sequestering carbon, the re-nutrification of that soil. I mean, I, I don't remember whose quote it is, but said that we are, we are lucky enough to exist on this planet because of six inches of topsoil and rain. And that is all life and what humans have done with these sort of, I mean, if you're not even considering looking at these the PFAS, these forever chemicals and all of that stuff, but just looking at traditional um, fossil fuels in terms of the extraction of these, we have scarred the face of the planet. And as you said before, of the cannabis doesn't want to be under this arbitrary levels. As I said, the cannabis used to grow wild. Like I'm not going to pull the figures out but it's in obviously Jack's book that you helped um, sort of put together and get published of the figures of how much of the face of the earth used to be wild cannabis used to be these cultivars and land races that had so adapted to their areas, not to the need of humanity, but to the need of that local environment. I mean, we're starting to see studies now come out of Colorado that I think the main study I saw was 24, 23 different species, subspecies of bee benefit from the late harvest pollen of these, these, these hemp crop fields, you know? And so when we start to look at the ec further ecological environmental impact, I agree with you. The absence of cannabis is the crime. Prohibition will come to be noted by future historians, touch wood, should humanity get that far, as the greatest crime against humanity. This is the blip, and what I often try and remind the prohibitionists is the entirety of human history is predicated on our symbiotic um, relationship with this plant. You, we, we're starting to understand this now as we, <clears throat> sorry, as we uh, map the genome and really start to, to work back with this. What worries me 
is some of those other people that we spoke of before that pushed past us when the door got open. They kept running. We set up shop and we were like, okay, guys, and welcomed everybody. And they kept going, trying to figure out what's next and next and next. And the patents and the research and development that is occurring now in pharmaceutical laboratories around the world. I mean, I'm not going to name the university because I'm still working on the investigation, but there is allegedly, huge letters allegedly, a university and police force in the UK that is working to map cultivars in this country so whenever they are raiding properties they are taking uh, part of the the plant they are then doing a tissue culture and they are mapping where else this cut is appearing in the country so they're trying to, to profile and understand this and then from that obviously my fear ultimately is where does all this data and information go it's not for the betterment of people I and mean, we've already lost some of probably the best um, genetics that we've ever had access to through prohibition, through the eradication and destruction of, let's think of original cheese, you know, think of the, the, the first Northern Lights cuts, you know, there's so many things that now only exist through one cut, two cut mothers that were barely kept alive in the 90s, you know, it's, it's insane. This is why we have to insist that when cannabis is legalized, it be legalized in a way that empowers the cannabis community not in a way that empowers the corporations who have been trying to crush us all of these years. Mm. This is why I think that, that a small scale cultivation footprint is something that our community needs to start demanding as an absolutely essential item that we will not compromise on. Because the only way that we're going to make sure that all of these evil actors do not use cannabis to push forward the same agenda that we've been fighting against all of these years is if, is if we empower our community to be economically autonomous. If there are thousands and thousands of small cannabis growers who love this plant, then when a big corporation comes along and tries to, to, to lock up patents on a whole range of cannabinoids or do something else that's going to hurt our community, we'll have the power to fund resistance to come together and fight them. But if we do not make sure that we get some of the resources, the lion's share of the resources out of legalization, they will just use those resources to crush us. This is what we've learned in California. It's what we've learned in Canada. And it's my message to the cannabis community around the world. You know, keep it small and get as big a piece of that small thing as, as we possibly can. Because our future as a culture and maybe the future of the planet is going to depend on that. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more because one of the main things that really got to me, again, in that conversation of understanding the licensing separation of the function of cannabis was people buying, selling and trading cannabis and it being exported tens of thousands of miles, completely not just negating its car the carbon it's sequestered, but pumping so much more. And again, the these investors, and I've been to a lot of these expos and business conglomeratizations and all of these dinners and whatever else. And sometimes the language I see coming from these people and their intentions, and they're talking of projections of oh, five, 10 years, lads. And I'm like, do you understand the damage your vision will have done to the world in 10 years? They, they somehow can't seem, again, as, as you said, sort of said before, it's because they've had no experience of cannabis. They don't have the, the passion of the plant, they didn't protect it during the dark ages of prohibition. And I suppose it's one of the questions I did want to ask you, I do have on my endless sheet here, is do you believe it's fair for 
people to be profiting from cannabis that did nothing to adjust you know the tides of the of the culture to 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 change the legislation to support the people that you know risked their lives their freedom gave their liberty and in sometimes literally yeah, their lives no it's profoundly unfair and it's even worse than that because what we often see is that it is that it's often the people who took active roles in oppressing the cannabis community who are now taking active roles to make sure that the cannabis community is dispossessed of the market that we help build. Um, uh, former uh, Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner, who now sits on the, the board of a large cannabis corporation, is a perfect example of, of, of such a creature. No, it is not fair, and we, and we have to demand better. And, and you, we have a, a, a real opportunity with cannabis legalization and licensing. When cannabis is legalized, the way that those licenses are going to be issued, who they go to, how large the canopy is going to be, what kinds of companies can participate, what the requirements are going to be, that will all be a subject of public debate. And Europeans should be gearing up now to make their voices heard, to build for an equitable, small-scale, broadly distributed cannabis business that welcomes in the existing legacy cannabis community and does not exclude us. Here's the big difference between us and them, right? We are people who came to this plant because we love the plant. And in the course of engaging with the plant, we learned lessons from the plant. And those lessons have given to us, endowed us, gifted us with a shared value system. And so when we act on things, we act on the basis of that shared value system, right? Which values nature over greed, which values creativity over conformity, which values justice over riches, which values inclusion over everything else, right? On the other side, we have people whose motivation is very simple, right? Their value system is to get as much money as quickly as they can and deny it to as many other people for as long as they can as possible. Uh, these are the kind of folks who um, come into a situation. And, you know, I, 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 was, I was, thought I was pretty aware of how rapacious um, capitalism was before I started down this track. But I've just been shocked to see how many folks come into the cannabis industry. And here's this table, which is like, it's so rich. There's so much for so many people. We could share this opportunity so broadly and change the world. And all of us, all of us could live better. But there's some people who want to take the whole table. They want the whole banquet. They don't feel like anybody else should even have a crumb left on the table. I think, and, I think and, it's slightly, uh, sorry, Steve, Jack, sorry I think it's slightly worse than that. I think they are willing to destroy the table. If, it, if there aren't people going hungry, then no one will eat. I think it's become that in insidious and you're seeing that in that they're allowing it to be inked out across the world we're all watching what's happened in america since 2012 and the votes we've all watched what's happened in canada since 2018 we've all been watching israel australia all of these pockets around the world and everyone has the same information and yet people's lives are still being denied access to life-saving medications they're being you know incarcerated families are being torn apart it's it's, it's yeah it's it's such a, a screwed up system you said that the europeans need to prepare i agree and i say this in in spite of what has happened and everything for the past several years over here because they have been preparing them lot have been watching and since 2012 the 2013 they went 
want to register some cannabis businesses, shall we, lads? Do you know what I mean? And start slyly building while all the time at the pulpit using their their press, I was going to say attack target there, but, you know, using their lackeys to project this image of, well, cannabis is bad, we have no intentions of ever changing the law while building everything for them. And I think that the the inclinations for this, that the, the underlying motive is a form of social control, whether it be through racist inclinations or as we see more, I think, of a, of a manifestation in, in uh, Europe of it being a class, a class thing, that it's about then going, okay, there's about to be all of this money, they have all of this experience, all of this skills, they could be highly paid labor, how do we handicap the system so that we don't lose? How, how don't our investments in big fossil fuels, in tobacco, in alcohol, in arms, all of these different industries that will irreparably be harmed from a universal change in consciousness? Because I guarantee you, when we're all smoking a hell of a lot more weed, there's going to be a shitload less war. Well, the, you know, the, the plant is our best tool in fighting this kind of corporate takeover. In California, right now, the legal cannabis system only accounts for 20% of all cannabis sales. 80% of cannabis sales happen outside the legal system by growers and traders who are unlicensed. And the reason for that is because the legal system is completely broken. The reason it's broken is because it failed to welcome the cannabis community that it's designed to serve into the industry. And that's going to continue to happen. Um, you know, the legal industry and the government uh, has has one of three choices regarding the legacy cannabis community. They can either embrace us, they can run away from us, or we'll roll over them. Here's what we've learned. And it's an important message. I'll send it out to all of those clandestine growers who are listening to. I know that you brothers and sisters are out there. We can outcompete the corporate boys. We grow better weed at lower prices and deliver it in a more compelling way to our people than the corporate guys in a legal system are ever going to be able to do. So if they do not welcome us in and they do not give us a real role, all we need to do is keep on doing what we've been doing and we will put them out of business. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I bet you just inspired a kind of a new way of looking at it for me, which really settles again, I'm, I'm Northern English, which is, we have a big issue with the South and with what was Thatcherism at the same time, you have Reaganomics and this kind of creation of neoliberalism. So, but you've just inspired me of thinking all of that wealth, that ill-gotten gains that's stolen from the unions and the communities and the people over these decades, they're the ones that are investing it in and all of these, this new industry. And as you say, it's, it's not going anywhere because we have the power. It's you, it's, this expression is in America, you vote with your dollar. You know what I mean? The bud you choose to buy is the vote of confidence in the grower. You want them to be there. You are saying, I appreciate your work, your effort. And one thing I will remind people kind of in this country, which can be a bit annoying to some people of the scale of cost some people have been doing this for 30 40 years you can't pay for that experience you cannot acquire or accrue that no matter the amount of wealth that you have you you honor that you respect that through what they choose to 
charge for their products. If the product is worth it, obviously, if it's not, then don't. And again, you vote with your dollar and it becomes proportional. You know, again, for all I said of my joke of my anti-capitalist shirt, I do believe in the concept of a free market principle that ultimately the end consumer should be the ones rightly to settle the price of a thing. Can they afford it? Will they afford it? Do they want to buy it? These are the principles that should set it, not how can we restrict the market through regulation and buying politicians and lobbying to ban home grow or lobbying to restrict, you know, the height, the, the location they can be or all of these other absurdly limiting um, restraints they've put on home cultivation in various regions. Yeah, I really, you know, encourage our community to push forward the idea of a broad-based legal cannabis industry as like the best opportunity that any of our countries have seen in decades and decades to create thousands and thousands and thousands of new family-sized small businesses that are going to empower everyday people to actually have a real economic stake and be able to get things done and not continue over and over and over again to be reduced from independent farmers and independent business people and independent artisans to be made slaves in corporate factories. When is this going to end? If it doesn't end now, if we don't take hold of this plant, if we don't plant her on our own soil, if we don't patronize our own growers, if we don't build our own culture, when else is this madness going to end? I think it is the last great resource I think it is the, yeah, the last tool of the common man to reclaim the idea of commons. You know, since the 1800s, there has been this war against public space, against the idea of public ownership, against the idea of the, the public being represented in the power structure. And there has been this, yeah, this, this infusing, this distilling into this, this insidious evil, frankly, I'll go as far as saying that, that then perpetuates the, the, the higher-ended individuals that work through their life, avoiding any of these things that could teach them these lessons, to, to find the others, to, to seek out questions, uh, answers to questions that they have. They're just single-minded towards that end goal that they've concentrated that power and they've built this system. As we're looking around the world, I mean, inflation in the UK is just going about between 10 and 11%. This is decimating as we're now staying, now we're going back to the 70s. This is before Thatcherism and Reaganomics, before neoliberalism got a hold. The press is, is painting this as a, as a bad thing. I agree, it's a golden opportunity for us to reshape and restructure what society looks like. Why should it serve a handful of people to make them billionaires and trillionaires when that asset and wealth belongs to the individuals that created it? And this resource, as I said, you can give a man a seed, but you cannot give him the skills to make that flower good. You, they need to have the humility to then go to their other growers, to go to the community, to go to the culture, to learn, to humble themselves before the, 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 I don't know what you call it, an altar, the altar of cannabis and worship at this thing and actually get that lesson because those that have the ill intentions, yeah, as you said before, I've seen it in small clandestine growers that are counting the money before it grows down and, you know, week seven, she seeds everything. Do you know what I mean? There's something in the plants because no, you you didn't. This is not what you wanted, no. And so again, it's we the people that understand this nature of cannabis, this intrinsic consciousness and intelligence. She will protect us. It may seem dark right now, folks, and others are getting ahead off the starting line. But that starting gun will go for you, and eventually we will catch up. We will overtake, and we will build a far better system. So yeah, inspirational, inspirational, man. Yeah, it's here. We just have to be very, very attention to as these as this these laws come out, making sure that the maximum amount of space for small growers is created 
and the minimum amount of space for large corporate growers is created. Mm -hmm. If we can just get that ratio in the right direction, a lot of other good things will, will flow of that. And I just want to touch on your, your analogy of the commons because it's exactly right. Okay. What, what we are facing now is another destruction of the commons, this plant, which has been broadly distributed throughout our community. Um, uh, and they are trying to enclose it. It's another enclosure, right? They're trying to enclose the cannabis plant within a corporate world. And we, we cannot allow that to happen. Agreed, agreed. And the other, I suppose, side of the more insidious um, conglomerate, international conglomeratization of these power structures, I see as a new form of imperialism. I'm thinking of then now the presence in Zimbabwe and, and Lathos and other regions around the world where it initially starts with, we're going to empower this community, you have all these jobs and all this industry. And then all of a sudden they drop it to, it's you no, know, we're trying to get it down to the lowest price per gram. Do you know, I think I heard of Colombia not recently, it was 0.03 cents. Um, a gram that we're getting it down to. And I'm like, guy, no, what are you doing? No, you, you, you're doing the wrong economics. You're understanding the wrong model of this. So, I mean, you speak of legalization is obviously a broad, very quite ambiguous and highly interpretable term dependent on what region you are in the world. So what do you think would be kind of the ideal model? If we could sit down and get all the best heads together and we just had a big old whiteboard, what, what would we present to the UN, for example, that just go, right, everybody failed. Let's rip up that 61, 71 convention, the 88 convention. They got that wrong. Let's, let's start again. What, what would we look at? Well, you know, I'm promoting this plan, which really centers around the idea of 5,000 square foot canopy limits. <clears throat> Um, uh, so number one, a 5,000 square foot canopy limit. No cannabis garden is, is any larger than that. Uh, number two, empower those cannabis growers to do anything that they want as long as it's safe with that cannabis to make it into any kind of product that they want on that artisan basis in their own workshop. Number three, empower them to sell directly to consumers, either face-to-face, -face, brick and mortar, or virtually on a digital platform. That's how you build a different kind of industry. So you have hundreds and thousands of producers worldwide. None of those producers getting rich, but I've done the numbers. Any producer anywhere in the world who's growing decent weed is gonna be able to support a family nicely. And when I say support, I mean buy a house, send their kids to college if they're growing 5,000 square feet of really great cannabis. That's, that's true almost anywhere in the world, um, certainly anywhere in, in the industrialized Western world. I was just thinking that sort of the economics in developing nations where the initial infrastructure uh, maybe wouldn't sort of be the same, but I suppose you, you could actually then create as part of a, a global equity scheme, um, ideally something, because there are, again, certain climates of the, of the planet where cannabis is just going to grow in, infinitely faster. She grows far better toward the equator with, with higher exposure to UV, which is what she's naturally sort of uh, grown with. Hence, we have THC as this kind of, let's call it sun cream for her. Um, the, the, I think we do need, then again, those wild projects, but it's then hard that somebody would then own that and not then go, oh, that's all that. it's not about money. There are some things with this plant that need to exist almost beyond the, the remit. I think the way you do that is, I don't know, I think of like all allotments. Allotments have got veg and stuff in, but most people will not hop a fence and break into an allotment and steal a, a thing because it's widely available, as, as you state. And I think the same is once you get the 
that marketplace correct, then we can look at rewilding. There are multiple variants. If you start to look at the ruderalis uh, genetics that, that express, that can grow again in more extreme climates that are again, just natural carbon cycles. They're just sequestering and say sinking carbon. Well, if you empower thousands and thousands and thousands of cannabis growers, you know, cannabis people, they're all going to do something different. <laughs> we all are going to go on a different pathway. We're all going to be exploring or different things. This is another one of the reasons to empower many, many, many people in our community so that they can follow their dreams and, and that they can do what they want to do with the plant. And they'll do amazing and incredible things because we love this plant so much. We're so fanatical about it. We're so dedicated to it. Yeah. I was just, I was just got caught up there in my head of, of these carbon credits and my brain went off on like these, these, the corporate environmental social governance scores and all of that for a second. I'm not going to jump into that because we've not got all, all too much time, but my brain does sort of worry about this conceptually then of um, kind of how the, the appearance of then good companies, even at that sort of size that I still then believe we'd have to then put in, I guess, other regulations, say maximum light use of then you'd still need regulations on if it's then consumables of certain uh, like PGRs, things like that, into the plant material itself. So the, and I think a lot of that regulation would still would require honesty and transparency. And I still think that a lot of elements around the world use these guises of doing good to draw the line of where their bad is. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, the world is a complicated place full of devious people, right? And, uh, you know, another one of the reasons that I like shortening the supply chain for cannabis, the idea of, of, of having producers directly supplying consumers, is because it gives you an opportunity to build real relationships and to assess people and to build trust and to be less vulnerable to that kind of misrepresentation and deviousness. And, you know, I've I've had the the benefit of spending time with a number of indigenous nations uh, around the world, and I've I've gotten the same advice from many of them, which is, know where your food comes from, know where your water comes from, know where your medicine comes from, know who you can rely on. Yeah, community values. And actually, the thought that I previously um, sort of spoke of there is one based on scarcity. Cannabis is the solution to the scarcity paradigm that is intrinsically baked into capitalism, that something has to be rare to be commodifiable, to be valuable. Do you know what I mean? Whereas then the ubiquity of cannabis, it kind of folds this on the head and creates its own and hold its own its own value. It spreads and creates liquidity within communities to actually have cash flow. It's one of the things that we are advocating in the UK at the minute is anything that you allow the community to do, you are disempowering the gangs. You are taking, not allowing money to leave the country, but to stay in small pockets. And actually this, this model that you suggest as well as a way to challenge that, that corporate homogeneity of, of then them just creating these tax loopholes so that the money that should be then funding back into the commons to create this public services and spaces is dissipated. But actually, as you say, these micro broried versions of, of cannabis cultivation sites, I think, yeah, is, is one, one hell of a solution to this. Is this something the, the U S is looking at? Is it something, cause I mean, obviously there's been several attempts with the, the more act and with various other things to try and weave together all of the complex legislation that cannabis affects, you know, with proceeds of crime, with banking, with interstate issues, because of obviously the, the various statehood powers. Um, is this something that has got any sort of serious 
support at the legislative level. Simba, this is actually the freshest uh, breakthrough that's come in my thinking about cannabis lately. So um, I think I'm ahead of the curve on this one. Mm. I don't think anybody else is really talking about restructuring the entire cannabis industry to be an artisan level industry that, that, that facilitates direct transactions between producers and consumers. Um, uh, there's not many industries in the world today that are organized that way. Um, if you take a look at it, uh, there's a platform called Etsy, which produce, which uh, facilitates transactions from uh, artisans directly to uh, consumers. And, uh, and I think that, that there's a really revolutionary potential in marrying that kind of technology with cannabis, with our tribe, with our community, with our shared value system uh, all around the world. And uh, that's just something that came into my head in the course of the last few weeks as I've been looking at, at all the problems that are becoming more and more evident over the course of the last five years since this flood of capital came into cannabis. And, you know, five, 10 years ago, we, we were mostly still small scale. Um, uh, we weren't at a huge scale. It's really only in the last six, seven, eight years in the United States that you've seen us come up to this huge scale. And, and it's now gone on long enough that we can take a report card and we can mm -hmm. see how well they've done. And, and what are the results? Well, legal scaled up cannabis has only been able to capture 20% of the legal market in California. And in Canada, they've only been able to sell 20% of the weed that they've grown in over the course of the last five years. They've had to destroy $11 billion worth of cannabis. Wow. So they haven't done so well. Um, it's time for a reset. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, that, that the time is right for, for us as a community to start demanding that. Agreed entirely. And I think the science backs this as well. If you then look at this in terms of uh, where my brain was kind of going with the carbon thing before is looking at ways of then there are going to be these global taxes. There are going to be new systems of regulation to try on the common man to try and deal with effectively a couple of hundred companies that are polluting and destroying the world. Whereas these, it's a decentralization. Um, and I think you could actually win some of the prohibitionists over because a lot of the prohibitionists now in certain regions of the world, if not the majority of them, understand that cannabis prohibition will end. They're going to lose that fight. But what they now need to understand is to be brought to the table so their fears won't materialize. There's not going to be weed junkies with cannabis needles in the street. You know, some of these people are actually that kind of infantilized and, 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 and crazed about the, the propaganda. They've lived through a century of reefer madness and no no other information or data and i think that we can bring them in through this idea that it's not about then just making these guys rich because there's it's i always say that there's, there's two types of gangsters that are in this game there are those in the track suits and those in the business suits do you know what i mean yeah exactly um uh, i've seen a lot of gangsterism in my career um and 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 um you know on both both sides of the of the legal and and illegal divide so uh, and they're very similar characters, no matter what kind of suit they're wearing. Indeed, but I think this is why it's it's wonderful to you know have you on a guest as a guest here today to show again the the commonality of the the ideology that we support the plant. And again, it's one of the things it, it's taken me a while. I'll admit, obviously, I have this reputation of being quite anti money, anti capital. But I've started to realize again, with good money, you can do good things. It doesn't mean that you have to sit on ass. You don't have to buy all the riches and live in luxury. You know, what I mean, I, 
And I'm starting to realize that there is good money in cannabis in the legacy markets already. And actually, we just need to find ways to kind of move that into the middle ground to be able to turn that into lobbying power, to be able to turn that into investment, viable industry, to be able to get ahead of the curve like our opposition are. Because otherwise, like you say, we're not going to have an opportunity to to play uh, the game when they decide to to start it. <laughs> There, there is going to be a legal industry. I think it'll be, it'll be worldwide. And what we need to do now is, is pay very, very careful attention to that structure of the industry and make sure that it empowers as many members of our community as possible and, and that it spreads those, that, that opportunity broadly. And I think there's, you know, there's a, an opportunity to do that because quite frankly, you know, investors are tired of losing billions and billions of dollars on these scaled up cannabis schemes that are run by people who don't really know that much about the plant. And more and more, you're seeing the, the smart money uh, turn back to people who really understand this plant. Indeed, indeed. Um, and I suppose I'll end with my, my sentiment in this is I want to see um, people's criminal records become their CVs that we should be able to stand proud with what we have done. Um, I think that we are at auspicious times don't necessarily pull your mask off and go, look at what I've done to the world in an illegal territory just quite yet. But in some smart way, document what you're doing, not necessarily as evidence against yourself in a future court case, but as a way to showcase your talents and your skills to be able to, to prove that you have legacy and longevity, that you have done the things that you say you have done because these gangsters in their business suits the con men, man, the shit you will hear come out of them, yet not one of them has stepped foot in a grow room. They have never smoked a joint. They never risked shit in an illegal area. Their one and only anecdote about their interaction with police was found in a book, was seen in a film. It's, I'm painted with a wide brush there, a broad brush there, but meh, meh. <laughs> I'm a bit disheartened with the Steve, I'll be honest with you, because I mean, here in the UK, I... I'm going to Cannabis Europa next week, and obviously uh, yourself, unfortunately, will be absent. And again, Northern lads going into the heart of London and all of this money and affluence. And I've looked at the roster, and apart from a few people like yourselves and maybe Mary from uh, Last Prisoner, there's not many people that are going to be speaking of my interest, of my people, of the millions of people that consume cannabis in this country. They will be speaking for the thousands of people invested in this industry. Well, I, I am excited that, uh, that Mary is going to be presenting uh, at Cannabis Europa. Let me just plug that for a minute. Um, mm -hmm. The Last Prisoner Project, which is a, a nonprofit association that we launched in the U.S. in 2019 to make sure that cannabis prisoners are released as, as this new industry is built, uh, is now expanding to Europe. And we've developed a partnership with mm -hmm. the Fair Trials Organization. Uh, which um, uh, the, the CEO of that organization is a guy named Norman Reimer, an old friend of mine that I worked with uh, when he was the uh, um, president, uh, executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And Norm and the Last Prisoner Project worked very successfully in the U.S. to develop relationships with the law firms uh, who then were paired up with cannabis prisoners and uh, and worked to get those prisoners released. So 
We are now unrolling uh, our first program in Europe to begin doing that. And uh, Norm Ryman uh, will be uh, presenting a panel at Cannabis Europa to talk about that. And, and, you know, my hope is that we'll get a substantial amount of financial backing from that corporate side of the, of the cannabis industry uh, in order to, uh, to make sure that as the industry has grown in Europe, the same thing that we're doing in the U.S. happens there, which is we, we get our prisoners out. Now, I believe that there's a role for everybody in cannabis. Um, what we're talking about is, is restructuring the entire global economy. We're talking about restructuring medicine. We're also talking about restructuring energy and construction and fashion and textiles and agriculture and nutrition. There's not any part of the global economy that is not going to be massively improved with the transition to cannabis as a raw material. There's plenty in that transition for all of us. Um, uh, it's just a question of identifying the places where the legacy cannabis community has particular advantages and allowing us to, to stay in those places and, and identifying the places where corporate players have natural advantages and letting them focus there. So obviously we now know that legacy cannabis growers growing at small scale grow the best weed at the lowest price. Let us do that. We do it really well, right? We also know that by and large, we also do a better job of selling weed. People who like weed like to buy weed from people who like weed. So let those two ends of the supply chain belong to people who love weed. But in the middle, there's this vast system of real estate, of transport, of compliance, of finance, of software, of all of the middleware that's going to need to be done. Let, let corporate cannabis come in and, and handle that part of it. And, and when it comes to things like organizing industrial infrastructure and figuring out how to put hempcrete and, uh, into the modern construction processes and replace regular concrete with hempcrete, that's something that we don't have in the legacy cannabis community. We don't have that yeah. skill set, right? And so we're perfectly fine to recognize that and welcome in all the concrete guys and learn about concrete. Um, and so there's, there's just so much room for everybody. If again, we just listen to the lessons that the plant teaches us and, and what she teaches us is that everybody has value, everybody. There's no creature on this planet, no perception, no way, and no path that does not have some value. We just have to expand our imaginations enough and create systems that allow everybody to bring their value to the table. So the corporate guys who like to build big structures, look, there's, there's a way to plug that in and do that, but it's not everywhere and it shouldn't be touching the sacred parts of our plant. Very well said, very, very well said, yeah. Entirely agree. Entirely agree. Um, yeah, it's. I'm trying to jump back to a thought I had there, but I was so entranced with what you were saying there because you, yeah, you were so on point. Um, I agree. Everybody has a position within this, and it's. I've pitched for quite a while now this concept of kind of what they did in South Africa at the end of apartheid and had the Truth and Reconciliation Committees. And I think we need something similar on a global scale from people from all sides of things to really discuss this, so we can understand. 
everything from the CPTSD within the, the prison and the policing institutions from fighting the war on drugs to the propaganda machines, to understanding how the press works, to understanding, again, the skill sets that everyone has acquired through the times of prohibition, what people are seeking to gain from this and actually yeah, match people to their talents and skills to jobs, career paths, opportunities, because everybody benefits when we're all in the right place. Whereas at the minute they've taken a snapshot of the box, they've gone through the pieces and thrown us out and then tried to build the puzzle. And then they're wondering why it's not working. And we're now just, we don't know what the picture looks like. And we're kind of trying to build our own and we can't define the edges. And it is, it's an absurdity. If we could just put it back in the pile and start again. But as you say, it means everything goes back in the box. And I think a lot of the boys and girls who've got a lot of their toys already maybe don't want to put them back in the box. And I think that's the impediment now. It's not necessarily the, the more for moralizing of the prohibitionist. It's the, um, not even traditionalists, but the, the people you, you really doing well right now. Do you know what I mean? That maybe wouldn't and don't know about cannabis and see those dirty hippies as going to come and replace them and, you know, attack them and take their gates with pitchforks. You know, it's, and I think the only way that we need that space where we all come together without hyperbole, without hysteria, without reefer madness and lies. And we can just go, yeah, smoke a joint, watch. Nothing happened. I didn't explode. I didn't turn into a bat. Nothing crazy happened. It's, it's cool. Well, that, you know, that's a, a process that's not going to happen in one event at one time. Um, you know, you're talking about a process of, of destigmatization and enlightenment that's going to unroll over the course of generations moving forward. Uh, we are now in, you know, into multiple generations of prohibition of lies of misinformation, and it's going to take multiple generations to fully un unroll all of that. The really great news is that, you know, when you, you, you take a look at what's happening with cannabis, you hear about the industry and you hear about the growth and you hear about the changes in the laws and you hear about all of these things. The one thing that you don't hear about as much is another thing that's happening, which is that more and more people all around the world, people who never smoked cannabis before, who never ingested cannabis before, are beginning to ingest the plant. And then more and more people who have consumed cannabis are beginning to ingest other visionary plants like psilocybin and ayahuasca. Okay? And, and, and as more and more people ingest these plants and share their experiences with their friends and relatives, that process speeds up. So this is the really important part about our work. As we go about changing the cannabis laws, we're not doing this just to change the laws. We're not doing this to create an industry. We're not even doing it to make sure we create an equitable industry that creates past injustices. The real prize is to create a world that lives by the lessons that the plant teaches us. And if more and more people are sitting with the plant and welcoming the plant into their lives, more and more of us are learning those lessons. And day by day, we get closer and closer to the world we really want to live in. Wow. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I don't want to put a downer on it, but I think I would get a comment from some of my regulars if I don't state it because it's something I brought up previously. I worry, again, to use the analogy of the pushing through the door, that some of the more insidious elements that then threw their money at the industries in Canada and America and lost the load and went, oh, let's go find something else. 
they're now invested in creating synthetics analogs of silicin which is obviously what we break down psilocybin from these these wonderful mushrooms that, that emerge organically naturally around the world frankly uh, as we, we're starting to, to understand that we're seeing in this country for example a polarization ketamine um, it's it's in one newspaper it is this wondrous antidepressant you can have an infusion for six grand and then in the other story is somebody tragically dies at a festival and how we need to tackle the scourge of these drug dealers uh, sorry these drug users and it's I think the UK, we have it a bit worse because our media is very black and white with drugs. Um, but it, it's an emerging story that we've seen for decades around the world. And I worry that they're going to keep that same control and go, OK, you can have your visions and your wondrous stuff, but you have to come to us for it. You have to come to our setting, into our space. And I've, I've often spoke of my fear on this, this platform that they will define and they will confine and potentially remove the mysterious, the divine, the, the, the larger thing that it is that we're all seeking from, from birth even, whether it be through sex, through food, through extreme activity, adrenaline seeking, whatever it is, we're seeking something. Some find it in God in other manifestations. It, I worry that that element is the dangerous thing and that's what they're trying to regulate out of cannabis, out of these plants, out of these, these compounds, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. Which is, is, again, why we have to make sure that the that the structures by which all of these compounds, whether we're talking about more psychedelic compounds or whether we're talking about cannabis, uh, are not just placed in the hands of, of a few extremely powerful corporations who then end up dictating the entire structure of the rest of the industry. And I'll just touch on, on this briefly with psychedelics. You know, um, you, you have a, now a great number of publicly traded companies who are advancing a variety of different type of psychedelic schemes. These are the same characters who put together the publicly traded cannabis companies that have, have risen and fallen so spectacularly over the course of the last five years. Um, generally, there's no reason for a company that hasn't been around for at least several years and already has established business in a legal market to go public. Mm -hmm. Certainly not a psilocybin company. So the, in, my, in my view, at least the, the vast bulk of all of the publicly traded psychedelic companies are just scams. They're just stock scams, and they should be looked upon as that. In parallel, however, there is a very real um, revolution that's going on around the world. Uh, where millions and millions and millions of people who previously did not have the information about visionary plants or have access to them now do. Um, and that's happening um, in an in, in incredible number of places. Uh, so uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, a different thing that's, that's, that's going on. And again, the, you know, right now, there's a lot more of us that have those plants in our hands than there are corporations. And if we're going to see legal changes, then let's make sure that those legal changes happen in such a way so that they protect us. And I think there's a strong argument to be made that profit-making corporations should not be allowed to handle psychedelics. Uh, and I think that there should be a debate about that, right? If you, if you start from uh, the psychedelic lesson that intention often is the determinant of outcome. And if you're going into the development of these very, very powerful medicines with the intention of just making money, where, where does that motivation lead you? Right. And is that a healthy motivation? 
And so I think about like, I read about this one company that's trying to shorten the effect period of psilocybin from six hours to two hours. Why do they want to do that? Because when they do that, they're able to show their investors a labor cost, which would be one third the price if it was a six hour experience. You get three times as many people in during the day as well. Again, you need the six hours. You need the rise, the point of mushrooms. You need the the tingle, the warmth, the almost giddiness. You find yourself laughing and nothing. And what? And the the reminder and the forgetful of the experience and the, the whole all of it is profound. And it's again, they're trying to go. Is, this, is it this? Is it this? They've, just, they've watched us since what was it? The forties. They've done these observations. Some wonderful people during the height of prohibition of these substances have done underground work. They are the ones, the real fighters of this. They literally found it in your generation and never gave up. And that work they've observed thousands upon thousands of people. And with all this data, these corporations are looking at it and going, well. All right, is it this one? Try, try no, is it this? And so, no, it's the whole thing. They need the whole experience. They're built of the, the two uh, therapists of a male and female to balance sort of energies. And it was all quite pseudoscience to the, to the mainstream. But if you've done enough of these compounds, you understand the need for this. The reason it sounds pseudoscience is the mainstream hasn't accepted our experiences. Look at the work of like Rick Strassman. And he was ridiculed for a lot of his stuff when he really started to, to look into this and trying to map the experiences people had on things like DMT and the entities and the things that people came into. It's like, well, if tens of thousands of people are having these experiences, surely we should be looking at it. Surely that's something we could consider. But they're going, no, no, what we're going to do is get rid of all of that. We're going to get this one little thing so that you'll be not depressed for two weeks living under our system. Then you'll be back. Then are, are you anxious? All right, we're working on that. We'll come back in a couple of weeks. And they're just going to build these compound uh, symptom-reducing substances and therapies to mitigate us living in a system that isn't healthy for us. Whereas exactly what you're pitching with cannabis, I believe, yeah, it goes further for other drugs. And I would be even more of a heretic for it to in some, some eyes, but it's all substances and compounds. People go back to things because they do something. Let's find out the thing they do good and find out how to maximize that and lessen all of the other bad things. That's what we do with everything else. We go with cars, for example. Some idiot comes along and goes, oh, we've invented this automobile. It's going to drive really, really fast on roads. What's a road? We'll build that. It's fine. You know, people are crashing, smashing through windows. Oh, we need seatbelts. What seatbelt? We'll figure that one out. Turn signals. We've built this structure around cars because we predicated on the thing, the knowledge that cars are going to be here. They're going to advance us as a species. The same is true of these drugs. And unless we, we start to look at them as such, these vessels to a brighter future, do you know what I mean? It's the seventies had a wonderful vision that are backed on drugs of, of Star Trek. Do you know what I mean? If this idea of these post futures were predicated on not on greed, on self interest, on hedonism, and, and you know uh, uh, capitalist pursuit, it was on the pursuit of knowledge and of experience, the expansion of of, of love and of compassion and connection. I think we can have that back, man. I think we can have that back. Uh, the, the, the plants will lead us to where we need to go. They've been working on this for a lot longer than we have. Very true. Very true. I read a while ago that obviously mushrooms were around before humans, um, and a lot of the structure of the modern world. And then what we're learning through Paul Stamets, wonderful work. They are, there's an intelligence there. Mycelium is going to be, I mean, they, they've literally tapped into the release, was it last month? A language that they, they constructed 50 unique different, what they're termed as words of ways of descriptive communications between the systems. 
So it shows again a complex consciousness, and then we understand that mushrooms are the an end product, and they're quite they're very selective where they choose to be. So you walk into a field, going to pick some Liberty Caps or whatever your native species of psilocybin containing mushroom is, because you said it's smart. That mushroom popped up there knowing you were coming without getting too a bit hippie with it all. But that's that's where I believe with this, that there is the Gaia model, that the Earth is an intrinsic intelligence. We are something living with on it, and it is trying to kick us into the right direction. And these are the tools to do so. So, yeah. That's been my experience. Mine. Man, this has been a pleasure, Steve. I'm not going to take up uh, more of your time because I've already had quite a bit of it. Uh, this has been a, a pleasure, and I would love to have you on again in the, the future because I feel there's, there's so much that we could uh, we could discuss. Well, it's been wonderful stretching out with you, Simpa. Thanks for having me. Uh, I look forward to the next time. Excellent, excellent, brother. Um, I'll let you go now, and I'll just do the uh, housekeeping of the recording bit of this. Um, so, yeah, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing your colleagues next week at Cannabis Europa. I'll make sure to drag along anybody I find to, uh, to come along into the crowd to make sure we get those money men connected because yeah, yeah, yeah. if you've changed my mind, we do. You're right. We need the money. We need the capital. Uh, um, take down socialism flags, lads. We're not doing it anymore. <laughs> right. We're good. We're cool. I'm joking. No, it's been a pleasure, honestly. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been well. uh, yeah, a privilege. Peace, brother. Well, Wow. Steve D'Angelo, I'm hyper, I'm buzzing. Yeah, uh, I think I fanboyed a couple of moments there where I kind of just was like, ah, Steve fucking D'Angelo, man, that guy has, has done it all, seen all this shit, like literally, I don't know how many of the questions we covered there, hence the reason I asked him back, and yeah, we got a good response there, that he'll be back, he'll be back. Um, do you look forward to also trying to get his brother Andrew on, who didn't come up in conversation, which is a shame, but he is who co-founded uh, the majority of the projects that uh, Steve worked with and has been also a, a lifelong campaigner and advocate alongside his brother. Um, do you check out Steve's book, The Cannabis Manifesto? Uh, what is it subtitled? A New Paradigm for Wellness. Um, yeah, great book. Great dude. Great podcast, as far as I'm concerned. If you enjoy it, please do like, share, subscribe. Try and help me get up to a 1,000 subs on YouTube. If you can't out there, you kind folks. Grab your granny, grab your sister, grab anybody in your life that is willing to listen to something or even just has a YouTube channel. They just, just sub. Just get the phone when they're not looking, right? In the other room, just sub. Sweet. Get me that 1,000. We, we can then start to do more uh, on the platform. I'm working on um, getting, you know, trying to get uh, a larger presence on certain social media platforms by removing myself from shadow bands as you may have seen on certain platforms i've stopped sharing certain imagery or trying to reduce the uh words i'm using as well um not obviously on this platform i can say whatever the fuck i want to you fine folks um but yeah every little helps as is tesco like to say keep tesco um but yeah it's a pleasure and a privilege i'm hyper and i'm gonna bounce off the walls while editing this i hope you enjoy this uh check me out on all social media platforms and patreon.com forward slash simple life where you can keep this project going for less than a cup of coffee a week all right. Peace on the folks. I'll see you next week with a guest. Peace and love.